you can become an industrial prostitute just like me. Talk she. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed's weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. That's episode 158. It's recorded live April 25th, 2013. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson, and, and we are drying out just a little bit, still flood stages. But before we get into that, I'd like to welcome my co-host for this week. We have Mac, the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. And we also have Jim Schultz. And, and we're going to have to come up with a new name for you, Jim. I almost was going to call you Short Timer. How are you doing today, Jim? Did we lose Jim? He if might have went to get a beverage or something. You know, these retired people. Yeah. Either that or he's muted. Or he's just so emotional he, he's lost for words. Yeah, he'll be back. I'm back. Sorry about that. Short timer is what they're calling me at work, but uh, I've only got 11 more days and then I'll be off. Uh, well, some people say you're off a little bit bubble right now. <laughs> uh, probably more than a little bit. But yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, let's just say I will be uh, self-employed. Is that how you use it, Mac? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one way to say it. You can become an industrial prostitute just like me. <laughs> Actually, I think I'm just going to call myself self-unemployed. Okay, I like my title. It stirs more conversations. Industrial prostitute? Industrial prostitute, yes. Mm. I'm an available consultant. <laughs> You'll do whatever the, the, the buyer wants, right? Well, as a consultant, I don't have to do anything but just think <laughs> about it and talk to them. <laughs> And, and of course, you charge you charge accordingly, right? And an industrial prostitute, you know, they they have to deliver. So yeah. And uh, like to introduce our guest for this week, we have Steve Phillipson. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing awesome, thank you, Darren. Excellent. So Mac, before we get started, anything? Have you been scouting out any of the uh, river sites? Yes, I have. I think I posted a picture of our common site down there in Niles. Mm-hmm. And as you can see, the water was backed up three houses from where you even got near the launch. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, uh, it should have done a really good turnover for us. I've checked all the bridge sites. I went above the dam. Uh, I'm really expecting some new finds this year because that should have really washed embankments away a good bit. So uh, it should be good hunting next week. Yeah. Uh, at least you know it will take care of all the leaves. Yes, those leaves are gone. Yeah, they're 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 now somewhere in Lake Michigan with the last uh, eons worth of leaves. Or the turning there. basin in Saint Joe. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had Steve come back uh, to give us a little bit of an update on the rebreathers. Uh, so, h- how's it going? Uh, it's going fantastic. We um, uh, Tom Road and I went down to Florida uh, the first week of this month, and um, we uh, completed our training. We were down there for six days. Um, it was six incredibly long days and um, came away with um, a bunch of different certifications on two rebreathers. Um, 
the Poseidon Mark VI recreational rebreather, and then also the um, uh, ambient pressure diving's evolution and inspiration technical rebreathers. Um, so I figured we'd just split it up and talk a little bit about the Poseidon tonight, the training we did on that, and um, then maybe next time talk about the uh, inspiration and evolutions. That sounds great. So uh, what type of rebreather is the Poseidon? Um, the Poseidon is an electronic um, closed-circuit rebreather. So, and, and it's um, primarily a recreational unit um, at the moment. There is um, a module add-on in the works to make it um, a more tech-savvy um, module to, uh, to greater depths and more manual controls. But um, at the moment, it's certified by multiple agencies as a recreational unit, um, meaning basically it's good down to depths of uh, 130 feet, 40 meters. Um, Poseidon have it certified with one or two agencies um, to slightly deeper depth than that and to a trimix certification as well. Um, but as far as PADI is concerned, it's um, recreational only down to, um, down to uh, 130 feet. So it's um, fully electronically controlled. There's no manual additions of oxygen or diluent. Um, which is the uh, the breathable gas uh, that, that they mix together. Um, it's very limited to what you you can do in a situ if you get into any situations. Basically, you're just going to to bail out back to open circuit, um, which can be done through a couple of different ways. Um, it has a, a built-in bailout valve into the mouthpiece, um, so you basically you just um, the rebreathers for those that are not sure. You have a double hose. Um, where the, the gases flow through and mix. Uh, you just reach up, flip a lever, and then you're back on open circuit immediately. Um, and then you, that gives you a little bit of time to flip to a, a bailout bottle. Um, you should always carry a bailout bottle with a rebreather, um, uh, like a, a slung 40 um, open circuit um, with air or nitrox in, depending on how deep you're going and for how long you're going. Now, is the reason for the bailout just because the the dilutant bottle in a rebreather might not be enough air? Yes, exactly. Um, the uh, basically they are um, in the Poseidon. There are three liter bottles, which is about 21 cubic feet, um, which is more than enough if you're just in the rebreather mode to go down to 130 feet and, and stay there for quite some time. Um, but if you went into open circuit, that uh, 21 cubic feet is it's probably not going to get you back to the surface. You're probably going to need a little more than that. So that's the purpose for carrying a, um, a redundant bailout bottle. Now, when you're in a bypass mode on that rebreather, uh, does it have a, a traditional regulator in it? Yeah, the, um, the Poseidon's actually, um, it, it uses one of their um, Poseidon Extreme regulators. Um, uh, it's one of the new open circuit regulators, and that's actually built into the rebreather regulator. Um, and they actually use that regulator as um, it's a, a part of the rebreather called the ADV, um, the automatic diluent valve. And so what that does is, um, as you're going deeper, um, the uh, lungs, the, the the lungs that are over your shoulders and your lungs, the air gets compressed. So you need to add more air to breathe. Um, well, that built-in regulator actually allows it to add more air to the system um, as you come against some breathing resistance. So it's, it's quite a strange feeling the first time you go down and you get to about 20 feet and all of a sudden you suck in and, and there's no air left to suck in. Uh, you get a bit of resistance and then you feel the gas flow um, being added into the loop again. 
Um, so that's that's quite a strange sensation the first couple of times you do it. Now, when you say low resistance, do you have does it? Do you have to breathe against the resistance to get the kick in, or does it do it automatically? Um, you just basically it's just like sucking on an open circuit um, regulator. Um, it's just that it's been so easy to breathe on that rebreather that when you hit that little bit of resistance for the first time, you, it kind of catches you off guard and you're you're not expecting that resistance. Um, and then it just it's just like breathing on an open circuit regulator while it fills the loop a little bit more, and then you're back to breathing with no resistance at all, just on the closed loop. So you went down to Florida to get trained on this. What was that first day of training like? First day of training was um, pretty much eight hours in the classroom, um, uh, going through a lot of theory. We'd done a lot of reading beforehand um, and done a lot of the uh, the book work beforehand and the knowledge reviews. Uh, but again, we went down a lot of classroom work, going through different um, aspects of various rebreathers, um, the, the philosophies behind it, how they work, um, how they scrub the carbon dioxide out. Um, and then we, uh, at the end of that day, um, again, we, we, we went, sorry, um, jumping ahead there. We did um, several build-ups of the unit. Um, I, what surprised me about the training is I thought there'd be a lot more pool time and, and a lot less time actually building the unit and, and going through different things that can happen when you build a unit wrong. And it was actually reverse of that. Um, the Poseidon's such an easy rebreather to dive, um, with very little options for you to add um, and, and make manual adjustments. That um, it's a, a lot of the knowledge of the Poseidon is actually in how you put it together, how you take it through its electronic tests and checks at the beginning of the dive, um, and what to do if any of those things fail the tests because it, it has 55 tests it goes through electronically and uh, if it fails one of those tests it fails it for a valid reason but it could be something simple like you just didn't connect something right or um, the battery's not quite seated um, or you put in a different battery and it doesn't recognize it things like that so we spent a lot of time learning all of those different build methodologies and then we spent I think it was two and two and a quarter hours in a five-foot pool um, at the end of that first day just breathing on the unit, swimming around in five feet of water, uh, getting used to how the, um, uh, the breathing felt, um, what to do if you got water into the breathing loop, uh, and some of the things like that, how to bail out. So it was a long 14-hour first day. So, But you did get in the pool then? Yes, we did. Yes, we spent about just over two hours in the pool on that first day. And then how did that differ from the second day? Uh, second day was uh, more classroom and more building, and then uh, we did some open water in a, a small, it's, uh, it's actually a strange little lagoon they had down there in Key Largo. It's got a couple of underwater habitats in there. Um, one, you can actually, uh, it's an underwater hotel room. You can go and actually dive into the hotel room and come up underneath it, and then there's a, a science lab down there as well. It's a small lagoon, about 28 foot deep, um, just but it's salt water, so um, it must have a outlet for the various boats and things that come in there. Uh, and we spent about a little over an hour in there, just did one dive um, in the, the late afternoon, and then he, uh, uh, we went through various skills. Um, again, the, uh, the Poseidon is it's pretty easy to dive, so there's not a lot of skills to learn um, above and beyond what you already do in open circuit, but um, 
The skills we did learn were, first of all, how to bail out, how to switch it to open circuit mode, uh, and then how to take it out the, the loop out of your mouth and transfer over to your bailout bottle. Um, skills back and forth doing that. Um, skills on how to, um, again, empty the loop of water if you get some water in the loop, if you let a little bit seep in through your mouth. Um, you can actually just kind of roll it through the hoses into the right counter lung, and it has a water trap there that'll hold it and stop the water getting back into the scrubber. Um, and then we did some um, DSMB, um, safety sausage deployments. Um, it's a little bit difficult, uh, different doing it on the closed circuit from the, than from with the open circuit, because uh, you've got more options to how you would fill your safety sausage depending on the safety sausage kind that you had. Um, so you could either bail out and inflate it uh, orally, or you could stay on the loop and then from your bailout bottle um, take a low pressure hose adapter and, and push that on and inflate it that way. Um, so there was a lot of skills making sure we knew how to deploy an SMB. Uh, and then practicing um, buoyancy control and um, uh, basically surfacing. A lot, a lot of swimming down to 25 feet and coming back to the surface under control um, because it, the, um, the air in your counter lungs expands so rapidly in that 25 feet to, uh, to zero feet range. Um, you're, you're not only trying to control the air that's expanding in your BC, um, but also the air that's expanding in the counter lungs because you're not exhaling all of that air like you would on open circuit. And um, it takes quite a bit of getting used to. Uh, I was expecting to have trouble with my buoyancy, but uh, i got to be honest, I've been quite humbled by it. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you being in Florida, you weren't, you didn't have the complexity of a, a dry suit. Do you, have no, you yeah, we actually talked to the, our instructor um, about that, and he said we were quite welcome to do it in our dry suits if we wished. He said, but um, again, that adds the third level of complexity in that you're then controlling air in, in three systems. Um, and in his methodologies, it was actually better to learn with a wetsuit first, get control of those, and then introduce your dry suit um, in a controlled environment, once you've got used to those other areas, he'd actually just um, the week before um, failed a very competent open circuit diver um, because he couldn't control his ascents due to the dry suit. So um, we heeded that advice and learned on a, a five mil um, wetsuit. Now, what surprised you the most about the open circuit? Um, you mean the buoyancy characteristics or? Or, or just anything in general when you were diving okay. the Poseidon? Um, the, um, it took a little while because you've got so much going on. But on that first dive in the lagoon, I did have one of the, the zen moments, if you will. Um, I was kind of just laying on the bottom, chilling out. And um, there's absolutely no noise. You, you just basically you can hear your own heart beating um, as you're breathing through this loop. And it's, it's warm and it's moist air. Uh, you've no dry throat, and then all of a sudden these tiny little fish just came right up in front of my mask, uh, literally, you know, millimeters from the edge of my mask, and uh, that never would have happened in open circuit because the bubbles would have scared, scared them away. So that was that was really cool. Um, that's when I kind of knew I was going to like it, and I was going to work my way through all the difficulties with the buoyancy control. Yeah, Jim is asking if the Poseidon allows you to do a manual injection. No, it does not at this time. They are working on a tech module that would allow manual injection, and so there is no manual injection of air or of oxygen. There's not really any manual injection of the diluent, but you can kind of fake that by 
emptying your counter lung and then um, purging and, and adding more air in through the, uh, the automatic diluent valve. Um, you can kind of do it that way. Um, but it's really just a recreational unit. You've got a paddle uh, on your left hand that's basically got the displays on for depth and time and your, your PO2. Um, you've got a head-up display with a red flashing light. And basically, if that red flashing light goes off on the Poseidon, you bail out to open circuit, you check the, uh, um, the, con the, the controls and, and see why it's flashing at you, if it's just that you were ascending too fast or or you're running out of time, and then um, basically you, you ascend and um, to the dive and finish the dive. Now, when you uh, you said uh, bail out, does the Poseidon let you return back to closed circuit, or once you've bailed out, you have to surface and go through a check? No, no, you can uh, go back to closed circuit. Um, so, for example, say you, the red light came on and you bailed out and looked, and it was just that you were ascending a little too fast, um, as long as your PO2 was reading correctly, you could go straight back to closed circuit and, and get control of your dive again that way. And then uh, Jim's asking, what electronics does it come with? Um, basically, it's got proprietary electronics that are built into the uh, the brains of the module. Um, it has a what's called a smart battery that's got a built-in microprocessor and the dive logger um, that goes in the back. It's got uh, a paddle that has um, integrated electronics to do any decompression calculations and um, basically it keeps check on how much air you've got, how much oxygen you've got, what depth you're at, and it'll calculate what your time to surface is and how much dive time you've got left based off of the, the PO2 set points that it's been at. Um, and then it's got the main brains at the back that um, the E-module, as they call it, that has the uh, oxygen valves uh, and the, the electronics that control how much oxygen it's going to add into the system and, uh, and the oxygen sensors. Um, there is a, a key safety point that uh, Poseidon have on the Poseidon, uh, Poseidon manufacturers on the Mark VI, and it, it's in the way that they use oxygen sensors. Um, I would say 90% um, or 95% of the uh, rebreathers on the market use three oxygen sensors. Uh, the reason they use three is because it's a very weak um, product on how it, how it works in the environment that scuba divers are taking it into. And so most of the rebreathers out there use what's called a vaulting logic. So it will look at the value that it's got from the three oxygen sensors, and it will take the two oxygen sensors that are closest together and then it will average those two values, and that's the value that it's going to assume is what your PO2 value is, which is your partial pressure of oxygen based off the depth that you're at. Um, and that philosophy um, has, has shown some weaknesses uh, very recently in, in regards to, uh, uh, without spending the next hour talking about it, but the oxygen sensors can become current limited as they get old. So if you have old sensors in there, um, uh, you have two old sensors and one new one, the two old ones could be reading lower than it's supposed to read. The new one could be reading the correct value, but it would ignore that correct value and it would go with the two that are closer together. Um, and as long as you, the scuba divers know that and they can compensate for it, it's, it's not a, a major issue, but you've got to be very vigilant around keeping an eye on that. What Poseidon do is they have two oxygen sensors instead of three, and they do a calibration process at the beginning of the dive as it goes through its electronic set. Then as you descend at 20 feet, it 
puts 100% um, oxygen right onto the sensor. Uh, and that's right around a 1.2 uh, to 1.3 partial pressure of oxygen. So it knows that it should be reading at that depth, that value. And if it doesn't have the correct value, it will tell you to abort the dive. So it's actually a, a validation check at, uh, at 20 feet. And then throughout the rest of your dive, it continues to validate that sensor with air or the diluent that you're using um, instead of the oxygen. Uh, and again, if it gets any readings that it's not expecting, it'll, it'll tell you to abort the dive. So it's a, a constant validation process um, that the Poseidon goes through that uh, they've got patented. And um, it, it seems to be working very well with regards to um, keeping control of your PO2 and, and knowing when your sensors are going off and, and that you've got good sensors. So what they've de determined is that sensors will actually go bad during the dive. Uh, they can do, yes. Apparently, the older they get, um, sensors are, uh, oxygen sensors are like a battery. And as they sense oxygen, they give out an electrical current. And over time, their ability to sense oxygen, that current that they send out gets reduced and reduced. Um, and it can actually fail over the course of a dive as it gets older. Um, and even sometimes on a newer module as well. Um, I haven't seen that personally, but some people say it can happen. Um, and so it's very good to have this validation process going on. So you, it was a total of five days of training? Uh, yeah, we spent six down there. Um, we didn't spend a lot of time on the Poseidon. The Poseidon training we did in just a couple of days um, because the um, technical rebreather we were taking to deeper depths, and um, that one has manual uh, addition uh, of oxygen and diluent um, and a lot more um, technical features um, that you need to get to grips with. So um, we just spent a couple of days on the Poseidon, mastered the skills, met the requirements of that, um, and um, spent a lot more time on the uh, the technical module, which we can get into next time. But um, at the end of the, the five, six days, um, we came out certified with PADI um, to a Tech 40 CCR level um, on the one rebreather, a PADI advanced rebreather level on the Poseidon, and then with um, TDI and IENTD agencies, um, they, they don't have the same terminology as PADI, but basically it's a um, air diluent um, tech level one um, CCR diver. Now, on, uh, Dave in the chat room is asking if the Shearwater has a Christmas tree. Uh, if the Shearwater has a Christmas tree? He's, lo he's losing me on that one. Steve is a Shearwater Christmas tree. <laughs> the um, the Poseidon doesn't have a shear water. I use shear water as my backup computer. I do carry a backup computer that I have on my right wrist. Um, so I'm not quite sure what he means by the, the shear water and Christmas tree. I also see a, a comment from Jim about do any of the CC units uh, come with CO2 monitors. Um, there's a couple of different kinds of CO2 monitors out at the, on the market at the moment. One of them is a, a temperature stick. Uh, which is actually inside the, the scrubber and it monitors the temperature as that thermal profile or that thermal wave goes through the scrubber um, as it's taking out the carbon dioxide, it actually creates heat. And so you can monitor the effectiveness of your scrubber um, by looking at where that heat profile is. Um, so as the air passes through it, the, the first couple of inches warms up um, because that's what's taking out the carbon dioxide. Um, and then as that temperature profile moves further up the scrubber, you can predict when you're getting to the useful life of your scrubber. Um, but it's not a, a, a CO2 
CO2 monitor. It's just a way of monitoring the effectiveness of the unit. The only unit I'm aware of out there that has a CO2 monitor is a Sentinel, uh, and that is, I believe, one of the most complicated units that, that people um, use. It's also one of the um, high, uh, high regards for the electronics that are in it. It's, it's got a lot of great reviews, but it's a very difficult unit to fly, I've heard, as they call it. Um, CO2 monitors are coming. All of the manufacturers are working on them. Um, right now, it's just been a difficult um, area for them to crack um, with regards to where they put the CO2 monitors and getting them to, to work in the environment that we're taking them into. And then, is the tech-capable unit alone not enough? Um, for me, no. <laughs> I think he's asking there, why didn't I just get the tech unit instead of both? Um, I'm working with uh, the local dive shop, and um, which is um, Aquatic Adventures of Michigan. And we uh, want to be one of the main rebreather centers in Michigan. And so we want the recreational units for people that don't want to do the, the tech capabilities. It's, um, it's very easy to, to operate. Uh, it's highly automated. And so if you don't want to get into tech, but you still want the benefits of a rebreather, longer dives, warmer dives, quiet, bubbleless, um, for photography, it's fantastic. Um, then maybe the the Poseidon rebreathers for you. But if you want to go down to the, you know, deeper than 150 foot tech um, deep wrecks that are in the Great Lakes and other parts of the world, then you would want to go with one of the technical units. Excellent. Well, is is there anything else uh, we should know about the Poseidon? Um, other than we're stocking them, we have them in uh, in in stock at Aquatic Adventures uh, right now. Um, we're actually as soon as um, Tom, the uh, one of the owners, um, is certified to instruct on these units, which should be by August. Um, we're going to be doing some demo days, and I'll be making sure I let you guys uh, know aware and aware of that, so that we can uh, have you come out and try one. Other than that, I'll be on in a week or two, and we'll talk about the uh, the evolution and, and what we did with that unit. Okay. Well, very good. We appreciate it, Steve. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thanks a lot. And I'm going to sit tight and listen to the rest of the show. Okay. So, Jim, you ready for a rebreather? Well, I've been thinking about it, but I'm going to get through my tech classes first and <laughs> get squared away there. And then we'll see about taking that next step. Yeah, that, that seems to make sense. That's kind of where I'm at. I need to get the uh, tech stuff done long before I, I delve into the rebreather world. It's nice having Steve on to uh, be able to compare the you know fully automatic uh, Poseidon and now the one he's going to review in a couple of weeks, and then you know hopefully we can get Bob to come back on and tell us about his fully manual uh, kiss because you've got everything from full manual to full automatic and you know, it's you need to know what kind of diving you're going to do and what the features and benefits are of each unit before you invest that kind of money. Oh yeah, you definitely need to make sure you do some shopping around and know what you're getting into. I, I could see the the day in a distant future where you may just start off with a rebreather, but we're nowhere near there yet. You know, I think there are a couple of people who have done that, but. Uh, you know, it's it's going to happen. I, as you said, I think there's probably somebody who's done it to test it just to, to be the first. But it certainly is not mainstream yet. But uh, I think you're right. Sooner or later, our rebreather probably will be a lot more mainstream than it is now. I don't think you're going to have a lot of new students buying them, though. 
if we can't get the young kids out there right now with regular tank and regulator, how are they going to afford rebreathers? Yeah, it's certainly not a uh, a poor man's way of doing it. I think back to scuba in the 50s and 60s when people were building their own regulators and breathers and tanks. Yeah, I mean, you 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 take a sport from something somebody can get into for you know less than a thousand dollars and you instantly put it into uh, the well over ten grand number. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the news. First one up is U.S. Tourist. Mac, I think we're getting a little feedback from your speaker. For, turn down. We'll see. We have a U.S. Tourist swims for nearly 14 hours after the shippy was on sinks in St. Lucia. Uh, articles out of San Juan, Puerto Rico. It was They were on a fishing trip. Uh, Dan Suzuki and Kate Suzuki uh, were fishing, and he was wrestling a 200-pound Marlin when uh, in rough seas when the captain of the boat came out and said, I think you need to put these on. He threw a couple of life vests and told them to get in the water. Within 10 minutes, the ship had sunk. The captain tried to convince them to stay together, but after a couple hours of floating around the water, they decided to swim for it. 14 hours later, he they make it to uh, shore. The reason I pulled this one up is I, it just reminded me of open water. And they, in fact, they even mentioned it in there. So even though you're not in a scuba dive trip, you still can get shipwrecked. Well, considering she was in the water that whole time in a bikini, uh, it's amazing she didn't die of hypothermia, and she did have some bad effects from that. Yeah, well, you saw what he did. Is he is he actually even, uh, what, do you think he went on natural, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, uh, I saw that too. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah, not going to go there. Sure. Yeah, she she had a wrap on, and because of uh, the the drag it had on her in the water, she took that off and just was in the bikini. And then he remembers the saying: "Was it uh, something about you know people uh, die in cotton? Cotton briefs. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he uh, let those go. Then he said, you know, he was wondering if the their legs would, cr- or she said, uh, wondered if their legs would cramp up, making it impossible to swim. Uh, they got close to shore, and the first spot they came up to. They couldn't go to shore there because it was sheer cliffs, and they knew that they would get crushed. They eventually found a uh, nearby sandbar where they were able to uh, get to shore, and they collapsed. It was about midnight when they made it. Uh, they ventured through the woods, and then in the morning they were able to flag somebody down. Uh, the captain of the boat, who they got separated from him, and his first mate did eventually get rescued at about 23 hours. I think it's called prune. Yeah, you're going to be a little pruned up. Yeah, you, you. I don't. It'd be tough to do 23 hours up here this time of year. Oh man! And then National Geographic has an article. Uh, this is kind of a follow-up. We talked about this where you have the uh, lobster divers down in Honduras, and they're just having severe issues with the bends. Honduras was on a three-year plan to eliminate the practice, but they've delayed it for another three years. Um, I'm not. It's not quite clear why they did that. Some are saying it's to give the industry a little bit more time to get used to not uh, diving for lobsters via scuba. Uh, some interesting I things. I wish they had mentioned the depth. Uh, I think we had in other articles that it was like 60, 70 feet. I don't understand why they're getting bent then. Yeah. Well, and then uh, it also seemed like there was something with 
you know, people continually, you know, they, they take all the lobsters at the shallower depths and they keep getting pushed farther and farther out. But a lot of it sounded like training. They're not getting proper training. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not taking the, the, the amount of time they need between dives. Because if you look through the article, you can kind of read between the lines that they've got these uh, lobster companies and they've got 12 divers on a boat. Uh, they said that uh, the scuba divers for lobsters, they have, they have about 120 cases of decompression sickness per year, of which 20 of those are fatal. Neighboring uh, Nicaragua has, had banned it, and they were due to end about the same time, but now Honduras has extended theirs, so there's some wonder if Nicaragua is going to change. How are they going to stop the non-commercial people from doing that? I don't think they can. I just sent you a link to a different perspective on that. Just for reference. Uh, Some stuff was also, I was surprised, like uh, Red Lobster said that they're getting 40% of their lobsters from Honduras. Well, it looked like a very local community of like 2,500 people in that remote area that does a lot of this fishing. And they were concerned, I think, about the number of people who were getting hurt in that locale because it didn't have the the, uh, technology, the medical technology to help them out. And like Mm -hmm. you said, part of it's training. It's, you know, looking for the dollar overrides their sense of uh, safety. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at other article that you, you put in there. I think the the part that I liked was the last statement in that article. It talked about, even more importantly, the project is helping the government of Honduras and Nicaragua, as well, as well as local stakeholders, identify alternate livelihoods for lobster divers and is conducting feasibility studies to determine those most suitable for financing. Trying to get them, I think, to go into the trapping method as opposed to the individual. Yeah, I mean, it's probably just... The, I mean, when you think about it, trapping does seem to be a little odd, especially when you can go down there with scuba gear and just pick them up. Well, I think that's the difference. In trapping, you can set big traps along the way and get lots, but it's invested, it's it's time and equipment intense. They don't have the money for it. It's cheaper to send the divers out. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, and that's what it seems to be. Plus, they've got to learn the skill, uh, and you may be employing less people. So if you've got a tight-knit community of 2,300 and you're going to go from what a boat's probably got two or three on the boat and then 12 divers down and you're going to go to just two or three people on a boat, you've got 10 people out of work. Might be interesting to see what a boat from Alaska does down there. Yeah. Instead of the Bering Sea, let's try Honduras waters. Yeah. Well, the one thing they talked about is also the, uh, uh, the, the fishery that they're depleting the resources of lobster. So at some point they're going to have a hard time sustaining. And it's it's surprising it hasn't happened already. Yeah, you know, if they're overfishing all that much, that it seems like it would it very, you'd very quickly go to have bad seasons. You also noticed that was one of the areas, if you remember the map we looked at last week for lionfish, uh-huh. killing all the other food fish, that will adversely affect the lobster too, I would imagine. Well, maybe they say that the lionfish are a delicacy, so maybe, you know, while you're down there, you do twofer. You know, get some get some lobster, get some lionfish. Yeah, lobsters don't sting me. <laughs> No, they just clamp down and hang on. Well, we've got Phil Soup. <laughs> well, we got the government spending a little bit of money on some scuba gear. Uh, Pentagon has uh, fifty-five million in programs that they did this week. It's a little bit down from their normal weekly spend, but they are in the middle of a sequester. 
The company that got the funds, uh, Tyco International, a subsidiary of Scott Technologies of Monroe, North Carolina, was awarded $11.8 million firm fixed price for foreign military sales contract to government of Taiwan with self-contained breathing apparatus and corresponding cylinders and valve assemblies. Delivery expected to be complete by September 15th. Well, I looked up the company real quick to see what they were selling. Uh-huh. And they're a firefighting outfit, so you need to take the U out. They're talking about uh, oh air systems for firefighters. That's what I was wondering when I saw Scott. Scott's generally a uh, firefighter self-contained breathing Correct. apparatus. Uh, see, they, they got me on the headline again because they put scuba up there. That's not scuba. That's a SCBA. Yes. So well, they probably got more hits on the article this way. I'm sure they did. They got one from me in a couple of different places. <laughs> well, it's good you checked up on that. I wanted to fig- see what it was that they were selling. You know, was it rebreathers or something? That's what I was curious about. Yeah. And then we had the tragedy going on in Boston, and one of the outcomes is the last of the two bombers was held up in a boat. And there's a fund going on for the that boat owner, and the owner of the boat uh, is saying that he doesn't want the money. He says, give the donation to the one fund Boston, not me. He said, people lost lives and limbs. It makes me feel wonderful that people are thinking like that, but it is my boat. To buy me a new boat is a wonderful thing, but I don't really want it. I wish they would donate the money to the one fund Boston's for those who have lost their limbs. I only lost a boat. And people were thinking that uh, he had insurance. If you read your insurance policy, since that was an act of terrorism, it is not covered under your insurance policy. And if you look under your car and your house, you'll find that acts of that nature. So he's out that boat. Yeah, it's not done yet. I mean, to me, I, I think I would just send a little letter to the department saying, uh, yeah, you're, you're, I think you need to pay for it to be fixed. Yeah, I think the uh, Boston Police Department may pay for that because there was comments that the subject was unarmed when he was in the boat. Yeah. So they're looking at why were shots fired if he was unarmed. But, you know, I'm just glad they got him. Yep. I think part of that came about is they were tossing grenades out, even though they were homemade. You don't got a gun, but maybe he's got another one of those. Well, if it's something I perceive as lethal, then, you know, you're going to take and use a little bit of force. But I, I think when it comes down to it, the, the department down there, if, they, if that's the only case they have to defend on this, on this, I think they're going to be way ahead. Plus, I mean, I don't know what they were shooting, but, you know, how bad was the boat damaged? I don't something? know, but as far as I'm concerned, they could have blasted those guys to kingdom come and blew up how many people and how many people got injured. Oh, yeah. Screw them. Yeah. My opinion. Sorry about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can understand. And hopefully the, the court system works its way through it and they get what they deserve. They'll never get what they deserve, but at least maybe they'll get the death penalty. Yeah. Well, there's there's a whole thing there. I, I think uh, they're going to have to be tried federal, I think, to get the death penalty because Massachusetts doesn't have it. Well, they were framed, by the way. They were framed? <laughs> that's what yeah. their mother says. Yeah, that's what their mother says. Yeah, the, the mother who was a convicted shoplifter who uh, left the country to avoid prosecution, that mother? Hey, what can I say? Yeah. Americans led them astray again. Oh yeah, it was it was all our corruption. Yeah, I I don't think we've heard the whole story on that either. Not not that I think there's a big conspiracy cover up, but there's something that doesn't doesn't sound right. You know, I think there was somebody pulling some strings 
maybe not from here from the U.S., but there was somebody who was convinced somebody to do something. I was just wondering, were they here on student visas or or what? They weren't citizens, were they? Uh, I think um, one of them was. The young one. Yeah, he he had uh, last year. He, in fact, he was sworn in on September 11th. Uh, yeah, there's there's quite a bit on the backstory on them, but uh, I mean nothing to justify what they're doing. It makes you wonder what frame of mind somebody has to be put into to go and do these sort of acts. Uh, it, it's not one of respecting life, that's for sure. That's for sure. And then we have a follow-up to an article we had <clears throat> earlier in the year. If you remember, Mac, we had the, the we were trying to figure out what they're going to do with those nodes underwater. Yep. And this one is they're preparing to install uh, an underwater observatory. This is an extension of that system. Uh, University of Washington campus, uh, they are putting high-voltage machines that will soon run cables snaking through the seafloor. Uh, dozens of engineers are putting together and making electrical alterations, running checks. Uh, they're using nitrous-coated titanium shafts uh, and a bucket of salt water for months to test to see if, how their coatings work for corruption. Uh, corruption. <laughs> Corrosion. I sent you a link on that. I don't know if you just saw it. Okay. Uh, the map is pretty interesting. It talks about that, but visually, it gives you a show where it's at, it's going to be at. It helps add a little bit to that when you talk about underwater observatory and what that really means. Yeah, that that is good. It's hard to get a feeling for scale of what they're saying. I, I like the disclaimer. They said all data is subject to revision without notice. It's like life. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's so who's going to be upset if for some reason it's not in the exact place they say it's going to be? So did you take a look at the picture? Yeah, I'm zooming into it now. They so so the Neptune Canada nodes, then you got the mid plate and then back to the actual or axial seamount. That's quite interesting off of Newport. So from what I take it is that it, these are going to be like live sensors. Uh, they're going to install 40 sensors of 13 different types are being assembled and tested now. And some of these sensors are going to be high-definition video and still cameras that will provide live footage starting this summer to researchers and the public. They have seismometers to provide early warning of earthquakes and volcanic eruption. Commercial oceanographic sensors, including three precision pressure sensors. Uh, they have a water, sample, uh, water sampler. They have a deep water mass spectrometer, a chemical sensor, and seafloor pressure and tilt sensors. And then all that data is collected and it's sent back to land via these cables. Quite interesting. Yeah. Now, I always wonder when I see them doing this, why not try and do this in Lake Michigan? Wouldn't that make more sense? I mean, it might not be as interesting, but you could perfect these systems without going to such a deep depths right off. I don't think you have as much seismic activity that would be of value to shoreline groups. Yeah. I mean, if that's, I guess, where your funding is coming from, the look at the seismic activity, we're, we're going to have very little bit. Hopefully very little bit. Yeah. Or maybe you discover something new. I mean, you don't know without looking, I guess. But cool. I, I hope this turns into something. I know. we'd like. To, I'd like to have their, you see where it says how many gigabytes they have for that? I'd like to have their computer networking ability. It's 10 gigabyte Ethernet. That's what that 10 gig, uh, gig big, big E meant. Yeah. I wouldn't mind having that. Yeah, and that that's pretty high-end stuff. That's about, without going really exotic, that's about as fast as you get in your data centers now. Uh, and that, and that's what they're using. They're probably, they're probably fiber optic cables 
using 10 gig E ports. That's some money invested. And then I brought this next one up, the Wappingers Creek Water Derby. Make sure I paste that in the chat room. I've been a little lazy on that. So they're planning on having hundreds that will set sail from the Pleasant Valley Recreation Center on an eight-mile race down Wappinger Creek. It's the 43rd annual Wappinger's Creek Water Derby, and it is timed. Even though they said most people aren't too concerned about the time, they're more concerned about fun. It's a fun day for people. They just want to take it easier on their way down the creek, while others view it as a competition, and they actually compete for time. It's put on by the Aquatic Explorer Scuba Diving Club, which has sponsored the event every year. The race, which ends at Greenwell Recre- Recreational Park in Poughkeepsie, consists of approximately 20 different classes for different boats, canoes, and kayaks. For the more serious competitors, the race is part of the New England Canoe and Kayak Racing Association Series, with points being awarded to top finishers. The race is open to competitors of all ages and encompasses all experience levels. Rescue swimmers are always on hand in case a boat tips over. Race begins at 8 a.m., and the last boat usually ties up around 4 p.m. The Aquatic Explorers Club was established in Poughkeepsie in 1957. Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm slaughtering that one, too. They're expecting the water to be optimal for the race this year. If they've had water like we have, they'll push you down. Well, Sir Larry was out last week doing a little acting during this weather and then this high water. Really? And they had one of their participants go over the dam, the French paper dam. Oh, you know, you laugh at that. There was one year, and it was probably the last time we had floods at this level, you went to the French paper dam, it was a ripple in the river. And I could remember going back a month later, and I was shocked at how deep that dam was. And it took it from, I mean, that's a, what's that, probably a 20-foot, 30-foot drop on that dam? I I took some good pictures of it. I'm not exactly sure. I don't think I'd want to run my canoe over it because they had a hell of a hydraulic, and I do not know how he got through that hydraulic because he oh, did yeah. not have a preserver on. Oh, my gosh. But they, they did have a fire truck, a ambulance, a police. Uh, some spectators watched it do that and then called 911. Larry got out above, you know, the, the mark where we get out up there, the launch. Uh-huh. Poured it around it, got back in the water to go find his kayak. And the only reason he found it by the Merrimont entry, by the way, was because it got jammed in some sunken trees. Oh, my goodness. Otherwise, so, it would have been in St. Joe. So it went, yeah, because it went, I mean, from the French paper down to Merrimont, that's uh, quite a haul. Yeah. Uh, like I said, Larry would not have caught it if it hadn't got entangled in debris. Wow. Well, I, after we get through the news, I've got some stuff where we can we can go over and review. Um, we have, so we go from an underwater derby to diving for dollars. Uh, this is a continuation of another story we had a f- few weeks back. This is about Alabama and their hope of becoming a scuba diving tourist destination. They go into some depth and detail about uh, how much uh, the recreational diving is. Uh, in the U.S., they're saying it's a one, it's an $11 billion annual business. And this is they're pulling from the DEMA. Billion dollars, that figure is generated in Florida alone, which has a dive uh, reach farther than the panhandle. Only Florida and Texas trail California number of open water dive certifications by state. 
it's like we said, and they had some figures. They said for every dollar you spend, they got $100 back. When you have something of that magnitude that's diveable to the general public, yeah, you saw the comparison between that and the aircraft carrier off of Florida? Yeah. I sent you some notes on that. Even though the carrier is 888 feet and Lulu is only 212, the wreck you're talking about, mm-hmm. well, one is at a depth of 212 feet, whereas a Lulu is 109. So which, is, which one is going to get visited more often? Obviously, the shallower wreck, and that's what we've always been talking. If we get have one out here at 120 feet to the bottom, so we had like 60 feet down, and you start hitting wreck. Yeah, you're going to have a very viable dive environment. I'm with you. Yeah, I agree. That's, uh, we, we've got to have the list. I've I've been doodling some some plans, and yeah, we we've we've got to get that going. Well, I didn't realize that when you dove the uh, the carrier wreck. To do that, you have to be advanced open water certified and have your logbook showing you've had at least 20 dives, and you must have your own dive computer when you dive that wreck. I didn't realize that was a requirement out there. I didn't know about the dive computer, but from what I understand, is there's a lot of boats that won't take you if you're not advanced open water, no matter what they're diving on. That's like us, so we take our own boat. So Yeah. Well, do we have, I think probably most of our divers are all advanced open water. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm well, trying to. Th- if, if not per the little C card, definitely by the experience factor. Oh yeah. Well, there's there's nobody who's been diving with the club for more than 20 dives who's not ready to pretty much test out of advanced open water. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So. That's the kind of ar- that's the kind of article we need to maybe keep around, and uh, whenever the preserve starts getting to the area, they can start canvassing for assistance and funding. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of articles that are going to be able to be used to show why it is a good return on the investment. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been working on some networking on related, they're related businesses, but they don't realize it yet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm building up the network of influence and we get time to start begging for money. Uh, there's people who are going to benefit because some non non directly diving related industries. I mean, you you think about the marinas and the boats and the dive shops. Those are your first stage who are going to benefit, and then you have to go after your lodging, hotels, gas stations, restaurants, uh, and get them to buy into it. Because that's how you get that ultimate dollar. I mean, you can't do that. You know, your your dive shop doing air fills and your charter captain doing trips out there. That's not where the money is. I. We've and we've talked no. about it in other points. A lot more is spent on everything up to that point. And then speaking of things you could ship or, or, or sink, there's a pirate ship for sale in St. Louis. So St. Louis has a has a nice little spot. That's a great article. I, I sent you another little link. When you get that boat, there's another boat that comes with it that you might not know about. Really? It's called the Shark Boat. And I sent you a picture of it on the second link. Okay. They rent both of those out for parties and stuff. And that shark boat to screen. <laughs> Take a look at the picture. Okay. I'm pacing the chat room so they get a chance to see it. This I think I am. Yeah. Okay. Here I go. So where's the shark boat? Go down. You got the second one? Oh. <laughs> go down a little bit. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Can you imagine seeing that go down the St. Joe River? Awesome, man. Oh, don't give me ideas. <laughs> that is cool. Definitely cool. So 
So the pirate ship for sale, it's a mere $79,000 built on a 50-foot 1988 Gibson houseboat. Has brand new twin 454 engines. Uh, Kohler generator V drives holds 30 people. Looks like a Hollywood set. Great as a liveaboard and awesome party boat. Two bedrooms, two baths. Just surveyed for $110,000, but willing to sacrifice for 79. That would be awesome, though. That I wonder what the maintenance out of this. You know, I have an idea. It's probably not all that bad. I wonder. Doesn't it look like it's? Uh, it looks plastic to me. Ooh, and I didn't go through the photos on the inside. Oh, didn't you look at those? No, I just looking at them now. But that oh, ship's okay. wheel is pretty impressive. Yes, it is. I like the skull heads. Yeah, just for the touch. That'd be neat. Definitely unusual. And you'd be the only one with one in this neighborhood. Well, that you doesn't. Want to buy it, think it. When I first saw it, I was thinking about it, but seventy-nine grand's a little, little much. Well, Plus, you still have to strip it. Well, that does it for the news. We do have a few additional pile-on articles. We have some photos. So, kind of talking about to preserve a huge pile of army vehicles sunk as an artificial reef off the Lebanese coast. What sparked my interest? I always liked tanks. That 34-ton AMX tank looked pretty neat, but you look at the rest, and most of it is vehicles. Not as nice as those last week where we saw the uh, streetcars. Yeah, those are much better than these. Oh, yeah. But still, this is a start. Yeah, well, they're, they're doing something. And it's just not a matter of putting junk down. I mean, they're actually trying to do something. Yeah. Like some of them, they were well, they weld the, a frame together. So you got like two vans all attached by the looks of it. And then the other photo of the week, which has been all over the Internet, the Grand River window. Now imagine this being your view when you come into work. The window to your office have water about 12 inches above the the beginning of the glass. I'd want to be working upstairs that day. Yeah. <laughs> it almost looked like a pipe there for a minute, but it's not. I, I was thinking the same thing. It has that long head to it. Yeah. But just, I mean, how long did he have to sit there waiting for a fish to come by? Well, he might have been attracted by the light, but by the same token, the other picture was everybody's on the bridge. That water wasn't too far from the bottom of the bridge. No, I was looking uh, through some of the photos. There was a, somebody had a photo shoot. Uh, they'd gone through the helicopter, and there wasn't, I mean, you weren't getting a kayaker underneath the bridges. No. They were dangerously close to, it, had this happened when there was ice on the river, you'd have lost those bridges. They'd have, you'd have had ice dams and it would have ripped them out. Yeah, you'd have damaged a lot of stuff. Yeah, so we just, I'm kind of surprised because I didn't think that we would have this bad of flooding this late in the year. It's, and this is not unusual flooding. I remember as a kid, we used to have this going on all the time. I can remember going up to Grand Rapids with my parents and grandparents, and the, the river looked just like it did in the photos. And I'd we'd be on the highway, and you've got all the houses off the highway that are flooded up to the, you know, halfway up the front door, and you're wondering what idiot lives there and hasn't figured out right. they need to move someplace else. Well, that was a wonderful lead-in, though, for that next video you had, that Whirlpool. Well, let me take a look at it. Did you look at the video of the Whirlpool? No, not this time. I would have got me something that would, would float but would sink, throw it out there with a casting rod to see where it took it because it's taking crap down. doesn't seem to be throwing it back up somewhere. I'd like to know where it went. <laughs> so if you had a fishing rod with a, something that would be sucked down, 
you might have a you know might be interested to find out where that whirlpool ended. Well, you got that Jim with some you got Jim with some doubles, but you probably have a good hour of air in that one, you Jim? Yeah, we'll just put a yellow poly line on him. Then you got a safety sausage with you. Well, we could loan him somebody's rebreather, then he'd have more than two hours. What do you think, Jim? Hey, he's got the rebreather. <laughs> wow, that that is a video, isn't it? Yeah, like where is it going? Well, well hold that was on. interesting. Yeah, because uh, a lot of times you get these where they're tidal, and and they're not really going anywhere. It's just kind of the flow, but that's sucking stuff right down. And then it, yeah, they didn't give any explanation of what could have been under it to make them make it do that, like a big drain or something. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. That, any that idea. was cool. I'm glad you put that one in. Yeah, very neat. See, did we give that to the chat room? Here we go. If we didn't, there. I don't think I would have swam in that. No, I think I might pass on that one. Especially if there's enough ice around there. My luck, it would pop me up right in the middle of one of those ice flows. <laughs> under it. And then we did have uh, potential cool scuba gear. This first one, kind of another spin on underwater communication device. This is LED. And uh, I did watch the video on this one, showed how it worked. A Japanese firm claims it has developed the world's first communication device that allows divers to talk to each other. Well, I hate to break it to them. People have been doing that for a while now. But uh, we get what they mean. So you have a handheld item in your hand. So as you talk, it digitizes your voice and then sends the data by flashes of the LED. When a diver on the other end receives those LED flashes, it then decodes it and then broadcasts it through speakers in your mask. So let's see what they're calling it, the I-Majan system. So they're hoping that they create a new communication method for communicating underwater to help novices learn to dive and may be useful in deep water exploration. The device has taken six years to develop and is expected to retail for $2,500. A little salty. <laughs> yeah. Plus, don't you have to have visibility <laughs> for something like that to work? I don't know of too many dives where it seems like we'd have had enough visibility for the, something to be able to decode the flashes of light. I probably could tap Morse code on somebody's tank quicker. <laughs> Actually, you may that may maybe that's what we need to do. Instead of doing the light, sound goes faster through water. Couldn't you just have like a bunch of 300 baud modems sitting there chirping underneath yeah. the bottom? And the keyboard, just type it out and tweet around to there. Well, you could still encrypt. It just would be, you know, low bandwidth. So you'd talk, and it would then digitize it, and then, and then, you know, somebody else would hear it. How good is Bluetooth underwater? Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about either Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. I know that some people have played around with it. Uh, yeah, the thing is, you probably would have to pick a frequency different than what we're using on the air. Well, when all else fails, just get out the slate. Yeah, because I want to say, and there's probably a chart somewhere, but it's. I know in the early days of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, uh, we were always concerned that they'd be interfering with each other. And then this next one wasn't so much of a cool scuba gear, but I want what they had in the article. Take a look at the camera. This one's uh, National Geographic. They're doing a Google Plus Hangout. 
on the Great Barrier Reef. But I'm willing to bet that camera system and tow sub put them back a couple of shekels. Oh yeah, they they had a budget for that. So if you imagine a underwater scooter and not your wimpy, you know, paltry two thousand dollar kind. This is your seal diving team pulling a, a underwater mine version. And then in the front of it, they've got a globe with, we can only see two port windows, but I'm imagining there's three of them. And there's a camera in each of those windows. And then doesn't it look like he's got a screen that he's looking at? Yeah. So that's probably some sort of fancy viewfinder. Pretty neat. Now, I don't see a cable, so if they're doing a live hangout underwater. Okay, so the, so that the globe in the front's for 360 view, so they're combining those camera views together to give a 360 view all the way around. You've Very seen nice. those underwater tablets, haven't you? I, we, we covered them a few weeks back that somebody was coming out with some. I just sent you the link. Rated, depth-rated underwater housing for touch tablets up to 200 feet. Okay, let's see what that brings up. It says, while underwater, you do not have access to Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, or cell phone. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we, we've seen that one. Kind of a little puck type of thing you run yeah. around it. Oh, yeah, not too bad. There's some potential there. But I can't believe it would not have a port for a trailing antenna on the surface. Yeah. And then you could do at least GPS. With an yeah, offset. Yeah, yeah, I think you could do it. You could do it. I, I was thinking about something like if you look at that, that camera rig that National Geographic had, I had an idea having something similar to that where it would be underneath a buoy. And then you'd be able to broad, you could use the buoy for GPS positioning. So you get an actual GPS and then your rig would have a downward facing camera and you would just take shots. So like you like your rec site there. You could get a a nice mosaic and know exactly where everything was. I was looking at uh, Catlin's Seaview Survey, and they mm-hmm. were saying the underwater tablet was developed for Catlin's Seaview Survey to be able to connect to the internet and communicate live with the world from underwater. It was used to carry out the world's first underwater post on the 19th of May 2012. The post was relayed by Richard Beers on his Google Plus account. Technology was not developed for social media, uh, and in fact, its main purpose was to be able to use the tablet technology to show how scientists could, in effect, monitor changes in our reef environment over time by viewing the imagery we collected during our surveys. Interesting. I had a nice little article on it. Hmm. I'm ready for one. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take one. Somebody wants to yeah, send Yeah, along with your rebreather. Yeah, oh, of course. And I'll, I'll probably have one of my sub. Yeah. Well, that way, you know, you can, you, when you're not in the sub, you, you can still use your computer, surf the internet. I will, I will probably have my sub before you, I'll have my sub in there with pictures on this on this network before you get your dry surf. <laughs> Whoa, now that's a challenge. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like fighting you lose, words. You lose. You know what, Mac? I, I, does that mean that if he gets a dry suit, you will get a sub? Within a oh, yeah. time frame after that, because if that's the case, I'll give Darren the money for the dry suit so you can go buy the sub. Cheat, cheat, cheat. I'm not above cheating. <laughs> yeah, so 
let's get back to the diving we didn't do this last week. Mar that Marmont. Gosh, why I can't. Marmont. Marmont. Yes. You know the flood's bad when the National Weather Service is listing Marmont and saying that if you live there, you're screwed. That's essentially what the post was. They said basements on Marymount Street are flooded. but So that outhouse that was way up on shore, nice and dry, in that photo it looked like it was like only a foot above water. Well, it's laying up by the fence in the back where it ain't. It had moved and then got dumped over. Oh, okay. And if you walked up the embankment at the fence line to the plant, you were like walking in a sponge. I've got a lot of good pictures. Um, I take a, a lot of pictures of the um, the bridges <clears throat> because you can see where some of the currents were really reverse currents. Mm-hmm. That's going to be an interesting place to start looking for grub. Recorded live. <clears throat> I think you he's back. Unmuted. Okay, I'm back. And so how much gold was in that chest? <laughs> so you said you had a bunch of photos of all the... Of the rips and a lot of places are obstructions. Uh-huh. They had some really reverse current. You would not have wanted to be swimming in that. No, no. Let, let me pull up. I want to pull up a site. I, I looked at it earlier in the day. Crap, and I don't have my phone down here with me. Let me see if I can find it. But it was on the National Weather Service. And they had historic data for the flooding. So let me see if I can get there. This makes for great radio. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. I think we're going to edit out the pause over the next few moments. Oh, sure. Certainly. <laughs> okay, here we go. So, uh, post that here in the chat room. Post that down here. So, here's one of them. And then, let me see if I can get to the... Let's see. It, was, it's like I, it, it took me a while to get there. Marine. Uh, mobile pages. I only should have prepared this before the show. Uh, well, here, I'll, I'll, I'll enter in some sound effects to keep the show going. Okay, so here we go. So I, I pasted into Skype that last link there. And what that should do is that, and this is a mobile-optimized page put out by the, the Weather Service, and it's for all the country, but this particular link is specifically for where our part of the country here in Michigan, where we've had flooding. So when that map comes up, you'll see one spot that references Niles. Click on that. Let's see, did I get the chat room that, too? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, chat room's got it. Now click on that link. And when you get on that map, there's a circle. You click on that circle, and it brings up the detailed logging information. Logging, L-O-G, not logging like cutting logs, but logging is technology recording information. And they're showing the flood stage. So this is the St. Joe River in Michigan at Niles. And this is a spot that we have frequently dived there at Merrimont. The, the river level is classified normally at about eight feet, which I'm going to say that's typical when we're there. The flow in the thousands of cubic feet per second is we're probably between five and 6,000 cubic feet per second is normal. Mac, when you took those pictures, it was running, I'm trying to read the gauge, 
almost 16,000 cubic feet per second. You, you needed a lot of weight. Yeah. <laughs> so almost three times normal. So, I mean, even though I understand it's deeper, you know, because you've got more water there, so you're taking up more of that river. What they're missing in here is they don't say how fast the water was, but that had to at least been twice the current of normal. Um, I would say a lot more than twice. <laughs> it was ripping. Yeah. Well, if it was, if you, if yeah. So that is a lot. Well, you know where we dressed under the bridge. Yeah. I got pictures that you can't get to the under the bridge because it's full of water there. <laughs> I believe it. But but we can enter the water easier because we can just dress there, scooch into the water, get to the top of the rail, flip over the rail, and you'd be right under the bridge. We're going to have a lot to see. This is going to expose some stuff. Oh, I am looking forward to it. Again, hey, Mac, where'd, you, next where'd you put that photo? Say what? Where did you put that photo? It's on the Mud Club on, site? Uh, hell, I don't remember where I put it. Club I site? It on the, I don't see it on the club site. Uh, Facebook? might have been Facebook. It was, I don't fa- it was Facebook. Uh, we'll have to see. Let's see. Where was it? That's the thing I don't like about Facebook. I can never find crap on there, even stuff I've seen. Okay. Yeah, it's oh, on okay. Facebook here. Under so Mac what? or under the club? It's under Mac uh, here. I think if you click this link, since you're friends with Mac, it should come up. But I'm... Oh, crud. Oh, oh I, yeah, I did. The outhouse is not only flooded, it also moved. <laughs> yes. That's not where it is normally. Well, at least it'll be, well, I, don't, I was going to say clean, but at least there isn't feces in there anymore. <laughs> at least feces that was deposited the traditional way. <laughs> I like to comment Mary Beth had. Jake got in a Marymount and she picked him up in Ben Harbor. <laughs> Only yeah, two dams to go over. How did you get past the dam? <laughs> wow. Yeah, just looking at that is well and then the friend of mine who works at one of the DNR ramps, he says they put the uh the dock in and they can't even see the tops of the posts of the docks. Well, you gotta remember that the piers are in there and they weren't even in the water. You can't even find them. I'm just wondering if they're gonna be there. Well, they never took the, I don't think they took the piers out this year, did they? No, they didn't. Now that you say that, more so now I wonder if they're going to be there. <laughs> That's right, because when we did February, we had snow on it. Yeah, well, maybe maybe, maybe when all this goes down, there might be a little bit of money be made us to go and uh, help people <laughs> yeah, find things. I mean, because how far could those piers, they have famous last words, how far could they be down the river? <laughs> Oh, wow. They're either going to be in that stretch for the next 20, 30 feet, or they're never to be found. Amazing. It'll be interesting to see the stuff that we know is down there, how that, because they got like that sunken pontoon boat. Yeah. I mean, that with the currents like this, that should be completely gone. Everything. We're way downstream. Yeah. Wonder how much of uh, the chest will be uncovered. It'll be interesting. Um, And then I don't have it on this one. Uh, Who? Uh, somebody had Grand, was it Grand Haven, where they had the picture? yeah, yeah, the lake that, picture, lake photo, yeah, yeah, that was online. I reposted that, and that was just looked like a chocolate river coming right out into Lake Michigan. Yeah. So about the only thing that should be clear would be Max Wreck. <laughs> well, we hope so. We'll have to go flying tomorrow afternoon, Max. See what we can see. Say what? Want to go flying tomorrow afternoon and see what we can see? 
Well, it was pretty breezy today. The guessing is what gets me. It was over 25 miles an hour. Well, I think, remember last time we flew, we came back from uh, South Haven because it was a little choppy. And that wasn't 25 yeah. miles an hour. <laughs> okay. Well, you know when to uh, when to call it. I'm just the, yeah. the ride along. So when, so when are we going to get a dive in? Well, I will be in the water before you have your next Thursday meeting here. Oh, you think so? Yeah, I know so. Ah, well, I'm not going to be able to at least this weekend. I don't think so. I've got I'm going camping. Must got a scout first aid camp out, and that'll be tomorrow night, Saturday night, and then Sunday. I plan on being unconscious, trying to recover from sleeping in an uncomfortable tent. Hopefully, it doesn't yeah, rain no anymore. No snow out there this time. Cold weather. Yeah, yeah. The, the weather's going to be. I mean, it'll be a little nippy, and in, in the mornings, it's. At midnight, it's supposed to be about 50 degrees, and then it will slowly gets down to about 38, 39 by about 5 a.m. So, yeah, it'll still be plenty cold. So you, you've you've already got a dive plan then, Mac? I will be somewhere under the water this week, yes. Don't know where. It probably won't be the river, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could start in a river. You just won't end up there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm ready. I've said that so many weeks now. I'm I'm. I, you know, I did. Here's my scuba project for the week. I took off my old faded scuba diving license plate and put a nice new one on. So I did that today when I got home from work. Well, at least it's something. Yep, something dive related. And I did, I did touch my wetsuit today, and it, it hasn't completely disintegrated any more than it had. Well, with that weight you've lost, it may fit better this year. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. My mic went out or headset. I said with the weight you lost, it may uh, fit better this year. Yeah, it, it won't fit any worse, I don't think. Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm still in the, I'm still losing, just not as much as I was. You get to one of those plateaus again. My problem is I like to eat too much, so we'll just have to get out diving and work it off. So yeah, yeah, that's that's what I need to do. I've been out in the woods chopping trees the last few weekends since I can't get any diving in, so that's working out. So a little bit on, on Facebook. So if you want to follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. Also visit the scuba obsessed website, which I need to get updated. I'm, I'm running a little bit behind on there. Probably, probably won't happen this weekend. I don't think I'm going to have any time. Uh, we're also on access scuba, access scuba.com and uh, scoop it. Scoop it's a great place. We've always got articles. So many of the articles that we talked about this week, I've got on there. You can follow some more. And I've also got a, a tech scoop that I'm doing. I don't do any uh, tweets on it, but you can if you follow me on Scoop It, you should be able to find over and see the tech one, which I think has got some really good articles, at least stuff I'm interested in. Int- a very interesting time in the world of technology going on right now. Well, either you got anything to plug? Uh, not today. Nope. So it is that time of the show then. I'm ready. I would say standing by, but I sat down for this part of it. Okay, well, that's good. We don't want anybody to fall over and hurt themselves. Last week, there was a terrible storm. Six inches of rain had fallen in the first 24 hours. Eight had fallen the second day. The entire town was flooded. Over at the Bronson house, little Jimmy Bronson, eight years old, sat out the window of his upstairs room and stared outside. He was looking at a sun hat that was floating in one direction for a while, then seemed to get caught up and then start floating back towards the house. The process went on for hours. Jimmy's uncle came by the house to see if all was well. He saw his nephew staring. He started to look out, too. He couldn't understand why the hat kept moving 
up and back, up and back. Finally, he asked Jimmy, what's going on down there? Jimmy said, that's Pa. Last weekend, he said, come hell or high water, I'm going to mow the lawn Saturday. Wow. <laughs> so, so I take it that one was bad? That, that's got to be right up there with, you know, a, that's a top ten band. A top ten band. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably at the top of the top ten band. So that's like that's like the bad and the that's a bad bad, not bad as a good that, bad. That, that that's a, a bad bad bad. Okay, well, hopefully we you're doing disappointed. <laughs> well, hopefully you're doing better than us. And until next week, go out there and get wet and stay safe. And please try to come up with a better joke than that for next week. Recording has been completed. Dave wants to know when you're going to tell the joke.
when when is the joke? <laughs> Mark stuck with us. He was a little late getting on the show, but he stuck with us through the whole thing tonight. That is amazing. It's like he deserves a purple heart for that. Yeah, we lost Lisa and guest six and guest seven just kind of bounced in and out. Dave chased him away tonight. I didn't get a chance to. That's Dart Soul in the wetsuit. That is probably a joke that should go down in history as one to never be repeated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I second that uh, I'm a big fan of the bad scuba joke, and that one, <laughs> that, that was bad. 